Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. These are the words of God. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come boldly to your throne in the name of Jesus. We thank you that you have granted us faith in him. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning, that it would encourage us, convict us, and draw us closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So again, we are spending the month of February doing a series of sermons directed uh, more towards the family. And last week, we, uh, the sermon focused on the view that we ought to have towards our children and then spe- some specific exhortations to the children of how they are to view themselves in the worship service and in the larger body of Christ. The sermon this morning is dealing with a related topic and in some ways is a very important question, a very important parenting question. But it's also a very important question that many children have as they grow, and particularly as they grow up in the church. Many adults have this question as well, and so I hope that it is a fruitful study for you also. God delights to have the children come to him to worship him, particularly on the Lord's Day. As we looked at last week, we looked at um, Mark 10, where Jesus uh, rebukes the disciples who were forbidding the little children from coming to him. Also, we see in Psalm 8, uh, the psalmist saying that through the uh, mouths of babes and nursing infants, God has ordained strength. God has, uh, bro- has brought praise to himself in the face of his enemies. So children, when they're coming here to worship the Lord, this is uh, one of the gr- things that the devil fears the most, is the lips of children and nursing infants praising God in the worship service. But children who grow up in a church like ours have an immense privilege of feeding weekly on the word and sacrament. They have an immense privilege of enjoying the fellowship and the unity of the saints in the church. They have the immense privilege of learning to sing joyfully, learning to confess their sins, and on and on. These are the things that the children in our church or churches like ours have a privilege of growing up in these things. They hear the gospel preached regularly, and they hear it taught, and they see it lived out by their parents and in their communities. Along with this privilege, though, come particular temptations. And there are two temptations that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The first temptation is that of presumption. Presumption is that of assuming that I am right with God merely by my presence in the church, merely by my participation in the worship service, or merely by the the holy or or, um, spiritual things that I do. That would be the sin of presumption. And then on the, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there is the temptation of doubt. Doubt is a, a strong temptation for some who grow up in the church. Both of these temptations have to do with the question of assurance of salvation. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I am a Christian? Speaking particularly to the children that are uh, living at home still, 
I want you to realize and remember that it is never too early to take your faith seriously. It is never too early for you to begin to own your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Proverbs chapter 8, let me read this to you. Proverbs chapter 8 is a chapter where wisdom is personified, um, and there's, many, there's an argument, a really uh, clear argument to be made that it's actually Jesus himself that is speaking here before the incarnation. But I want you to hear this as, as the words of Jesus. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. The King James renders it, those who seek me early will find me. And so, children, I want you to to realize this. As you grow up in this church, it is never too early for you to seek Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. It is never too early. Do you trust in him as your Lord and as your Savior? Do you turn to him in repentance from your sins? And we should pause here to define what is sin. Sin is disobedience to what God has commanded. Sin is doing things contrary or against what God has said. If I do things that God has said not to do, such as if I tell a lie, if I lie to my parents, then I'm doing something that God has said not to do. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So I'm breaking God's law. But I can break God's law the other way. I can can not do things that he has told me to do. One of the other commandments is to honor your father and mother. And if I don't honor my parents, this is true for children living in the home, but also true for those out of the home. All of us are children in some regard. And if we're not honoring our parents or obeying them, then we're breaking God's law in that direction by not doing what he has called us to do. These are the two primary ways that we break God's law. Doing what he says not to do or not doing what he says to do. And so when we have done that, do you turn and take those sins to Jesus. Do you take them to Jesus Christ because, he's the, because he is your Lord? Because you know that he's the one who has saved you. Do you turn to him in repentance? That would be faithful living, faithful growing up in the church. On the other hand, there is this temptation, though, of presumption. And that is to think that because you come to church, that's what makes you a Christian. It's easy, especially for those who have grown up in the church, to think that because you've gone to church all your life, because your parents have always brought you here, um, because you have always come and worshipped in the worship service, that that's why you're a Christian. Now, God certainly uses that to draw children to himself. We talked about that last week. That's part of God's plan for bringing children to himself. But don't depend upon the fact that you come to church as that's why you're a Christian. You need to also believe on Jesus yourself. Take, uh, you need to seek him yourself. It's easy for some to think that, that you are all right with God, that you'll be spared from God's wrath over your sin simply because you come here and you're good sometimes. And that is a terrible place to be, to think that you are right with God because you do good sometimes. Sometimes you obey your parents. And sometimes you do the right thing. Sometimes you speak respectfully and you share with your neighbors. And and because of that, you're right with God. Jesus has many strong words and warnings against that kind of an attitude. So to think that this is why you are saved is the sin of presumption. And yes, it is a sin. On the other hand, so that's the one temptation that we spoke of as growing up in the church, that's a temptation that some have, is to be presumptuous about their salvation. On the other hand, 
you might sometimes find yourself, and kids, I want you to consider, maybe you've had this question. Have you wondered if you're really saved? You might have had the question, what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not really a Christian? There's actually a problem with this question. What if statements like this really are only doubts? And they really don't have a real answer. The only right response to a what if I'm not saved question is what if you are? If my question is what if I'm not saved, the right response is actually just, well, what if you are? It's, think of it this way. There's a, an analogy that Pastor Wilson likes to use, which is really helpful. Um, for, uh, um, let's say that you have a wife who is um, really worried and concerned that her husband might be having an affair. And she's thinking to herself all the time, what if he's cheating on me? What if he's having an affair? And the right response for that woman really is, well, what if he's not? What if he is, but what if he's not? Now, if she sees some woman out in a, you know, in a red convertible honking the horn, calling for her husband, um, then she might, she might ask the question, what is she doing out there? And that's a reasonable question that there's a definitive answer to, right? But, in, but it just asking what if, that, that's just a doubt and it doesn't have an answer. So we want to phrase our questions carefully. Instead of just asking, what if I'm not saved? We should perhaps ask, how do I know that I'm saved? Or maybe even, can I know? Can I know for certain that I'm saved? That's a reasonable question because it has reasonable answers that scripture provides. And the scriptures indicate that yes, you can know, you can have certainty about whether you're saved. But this certainty ultimately does not come from looking deep into yourself. The temptation is when we, when we ask this question, um, if I'm getting over the, the habit of saying, what if I'm saved? And instead I'm asking, how do I know that I'm saved? The temptation is to then look deep in yourself to see if you really, really mean it that you believe in Jesus. And unfortunately, in, in one sense, unfortunately, in another sense, fortunately, but, but unfortunately, we're not to be trusted. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are wicked. We still do sin. We, we can't trust our hearts, our deepest feelings. And so we, don't, we need to not look deep into ourselves to know if we really are saved. Instead, we need to look to the Savior. If you want to know if you're really saved, the way to know is to look to the Savior. Look to the one in whom you place your trust. Certainty about your salvation comes from looking at Jesus, not at looking at yourself. And this sort of certainty is what we mean when we say assurance of salvation. So we're going to, so with these two things in mind, there's, on the one hand, there's the temptation to be presumptuous and to think that you're right with God just because of the good things you do. And on the other hand, there's a temptation to fall into sort of a swirl of doubts. What if, what if, what if, what if? And it's, it's easy to fall into that and get trapped in that. The way to come out of that is to realize that those what if questions are, are not helpful. Scripture does not call on you to ask what if. It calls on you to place your trust in Jesus and then gives you ways to know that that, that that faith is genuine. Scripture gives us these things. We're going to look at those in a few minutes. Look at, again at our text this morning. This is related to this idea of I, I need to, if I want to know how it is that I'm saved or whether I can know that I'm saved, we need to not look to ourselves but look to Christ. So look again at our sermon text, 1 John 5. 
verses 10 through 13. In this text, John says that he writes to those who believe. So he's writing to those who say that they believe in Jesus. And he's writing to them so that they would know that they have eternal life. This is what he says in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, so that you may know, so that you may have certainty. Certainty about what? That you have eternal life. That you are saved. That you are right with God. So, so uh, the first thing we should notice is that John is writing to those who profess faith, who say they believe in Jesus, so that they could have certainty about their status before God. That means, Scripture indicates that you can know, that you can have that certainty. The other thing that's really important to notice is that John says that he who believes in the Son has the Son and therefore has eternal life. This is one of the first ways that we come to assurance about our salvation is is a simple belief and a simple understanding of the way that God works. John says very simply, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. And I'm writing this to you who say you believe so that you can know that it's true. So you can know, so you can have certainty. Someone does not believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, lay hold of Jesus, and not have eternal life. Those things don't go together. You can't believe in Jesus, you can't trust in Jesus, you can't grasp Christ and not have eternal life. Because John says, he who has the Son has eternal life. And this is not because we're really good at grasping Christ. It's not because we, once we lay hold of Christ, we have a strong grip. Um, there, there's, uh, Calvinists are accused of um, sort of being flippant with saying, once saved, always saved. As though, that, as though this is something that is um, dependent on us and our ability to just believe forever. And that's not at all what we believe. We believe what Jesus says about his people. Jesus says that he is the shepherd and his sheep hear his voice. And Jesus says, I don't lose any of them. This is what he says in John chapter 10. He says, I am the, I am the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And every one that the father has given to me of them, I will lose none. It's not a question, a lot of Christians really struggle with the idea of, can I lose my salvation because of my sin? And the scripture teaches that no, but not because you can lose it. You're asking the wrong question. It's not whether or not you can lose your salvation. It's whether or not Christ will let go of you. It's whether or not Christ can lose a Christian. And Jesus says, no, all of those that the father has given to me, I lose none of them. And John says then in 1 John that this is God's testimony to us. This is God's witness, God's testimony to us. And by understanding this, we know that we have eternal life. We are able to know that we have eternal life because of what God has said. And so John argues that we can have certainty about our salvation simply by believing in Jesus. Your your faith in Christ is one of the means by which you can have assurance because you would not believe in him. You would not trust him. And, we're, and, and not arguing that you trust him perfectly. But you would not trust him 
if you're not his? But this begs another question. Why then do so many at times, why then do I at times lack that certainty? There certainly are times, and, and again, I want to direct this question particularly to children in the, in the you know, middle school, high school years. Why is it at times that you think, I don't know if I'm a Christian, or, or how do I know? I think I know. I think I believe in Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus, but how do I know that it's real? How do I know that I'm not faking it? How can I know that I'm saved? Why do some lack assurance? Well, there are a number of things that cause this lack of assurance, and the Bible teaches us about these things as well. The first reason, and I want you to to hear what I'm about to say here with everything else that I've said in mind. So, So hold these things together. But the first reason that someone might lack assurance is simply because you're not actually saved. If you're not saved, you you wouldn't have assurance that you were saved. It's possible to be in the visible church. It's possible to be in the what's also called the historical church, the, the church body that we can see. It's possible to be here, to have been in the church all your life even, and not actually believed in Jesus. And and in doing so, what you're what you've been doing is deceiving yourself. And and deceiving others around you, perhaps, by living a certain way, but not actually believing in the one whom you say you believe in. Again, this would be the sin of presumption. However, I I hope this is a comfort for those of you who, when I say that, all of a sudden are really worried about whether or not you're saved. And and the comfort is, the people that um, are not actually saved generally don't struggle with a question of assurance. Because fundamentally, they don't care. Did you follow me? If, if somebody is struggling with a, this question about assurance, it's not likely that they fall into this category. If you're not saved, you have no assurance. But if you're saved or if God is working in you, then, um, then you would care about it. And if you care about it, then you're probably not in that category of people that shouldn't have it at all. Okay? But that's an important thing to note. If I don't have assurance of my salvation, it's possible that it's because I'm not actually saved. The second reason, and this is um, one of probably one of the most important reasons, and that is that because you are living in sin. There's unconfessed sin in your life. Sin that you, and, and it's usually not sin that you're completely unaware of. It's usually sin that you have done, that you know that you have done, that you haven't dealt with, that you're hiding from God or from your friends or from your parents or from your spouse, and that you're not dealing with. When you're in that kind of a state, then, um, of course, you're not going to have assurance of your salvation. If you're still in 1 John, turn, over, turn back a page or two to 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> John says, if we say that we have fellowship with God... And we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. And this means that um, John is assuming something here. He's assuming that this is possible. That this does in fact happen in churches. Where there are those who say that they have fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness. They say that they have fellowship with God, but they have hidden sin that they walk in. That they hold on to. That they refuse to turn away from. 
And if we're, if we're living that way, then we're in the darkness and we're lying and the truth is not in us. We're not practicing the truth. But on the other hand, verse 7, if we walk in the light, so if we've turned to him and we're confessing our sins, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're walking in the light, Jesus' blood covers everything. If you're walking in darkness, then, then you don't have a, a sense of surety about Jesus' blood, about Jesus' work on the cross for you. If you're living in sin, there should be a question that, that is right and appropriate. If you're, and again, this, is, this does not mean that you're not sinning at all. What I mean by living in sin is, is committing sin, disobeying God in, in particular ways, and not doing anything about it, not not turning to Christ with it, not naming it and laying it at the foot of the cross. And on the other hand, if we are, um, we are all saved though we may be, we are still sinners and we still disobey God. And if we're walking with Christ, that means that when we sin, we get on our knees and we confess it. Um, children, when you sin, do your parents take you away and deal with it with, with you in the bedroom, whether it's through spankings or l- leading you and showing you that you need to repent of those sins? And do you agree with them? Yes, that was wrong. And I need to repent. Please forgive me. You ask God to forgive you. You ask your parents to forgive you. That's walking in the light. Confessing your sin is walking in the light. And if we're walking in the light, then we have a sense of surety about the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. So you can't live in sin and have assurance of your salvation. It's only natural that you might wonder if you are really a Christian, if you really are living in, with this sort of, um, living in, walking in the darkness in this way. Now there's a third cause of, that, that gives people a lack of assurance that is, is not is not that, is not about living in sin. And so there are, there are many who also have a lack of assurance um, because of this. And this is a misunderstanding. This is a misunderstanding of the, of the work of salvation in our lives. It's a confusion between justification on the one hand and sanctification on the other hand. Um, kids and adults, these are big theological terms, but they're really simple in one sense. Justification means being made right with God. It refers to a, a legal standing so that if we know that because of our sin, if we stood before God, we would be judged guilty apart from the work of Christ in our lives. But if we've placed our trust in Jesus, if he has saved us, if he died for us, then when we stand before God, God says over us, you're not guilty. Our status has changed because God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. Justification is your legal, your your righteous standing before God. It happens one time, it's done one time when you're saved, and you carry that with you to heaven. You carry it with you all the way to uh, be with Christ when you die. That's your justification. That's given to you one time. And it's possible for people to think that because you are justified, because you've been saved, there's, there's no need for anything else to really happen. There's no need for me to grow in that faith, to grow in that salvation. But then this this person who's thinking this way realizes that he still sins. And that's shocking. I thought I was a Christian. Why am I still sinning? Why am I still sinning in the same way over and over again? 
I confess it and I deal with it and, and I, I, I still fall. Well, this is the work of sanctification that God is doing in you. As you, are, as you sin, as you sin, if the Holy Spirit is working in you and you're confessing it and you, you feel the discipline of the Lord and you confess it before him, that's your sanctification, your growth in that grace. So we need to be careful not to confuse these things, just our justification and our sanctification. And it is very possible that, um, to, to think that I'm, or to question whether or not I am saved because I, I don't understand those things, because I've confused those things. We forget that there still is a war in us. Paul tells us about this in Galatians 5, the war between the flesh and the spirit. So these are three primary, there's, there's probably others, but three primary reasons why somebody would lack assurance. They're not actually saved, but again, then they probably wouldn't care. Secondly, they're walking, walking or living in unconfessed sin. And then thirdly, because they are um, confused about the difference between justification and sanctification. The, their legal standing before God and the work of um, the Spirit growing them in holiness over time. And the antidote to all of these causes for a lack of assurance really at root is, is the simple gospel. It's simply turning or returning to Christ. Trusting in the work that he has accomplished through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. If you find yourself lacking assurance because of any of these things, the answer is, well, turn to Jesus. Turn to Christ. If you've been living in sin and that's why you're wondering whether or not you're saved, the answer is, well, turn to Christ. Get on your knees and repent of those things. Take care of them with the Lord and with whomever else you need to and turn away from them. Or if, if you realize that, wow, I, I don't understand this whole justification, sanctification thing, then go turn to Christ. Turn to the Lord and, and place your trust in him because he died once for your sins and it's all paid for. And then turn to his word, what he says, and see what he says about these things. But, but the answer for all of these things is to turn to Christ. So this deals with the questions of um, why someone might lack assurance. But I want to now give some evidences for assurance. Give the positive argument for how you can know that you are saved. And again, I want to give this to you. Um, kids, I want to give this to you. Adults, I want to give this to you because God gives it to you. Because it's what his word says. It's what his word teaches. You can know with certainty whether you are saved. Scripture says you can know, but still how do we know? There are a number of evidences that I want to walk through, and I'm going to give you five of them. Um, and most of them come pretty directly from the Scriptures. One of them is sort of an implication, but the others come pretty straight out of the Word. The first is, uh, again, in, John, in 1 John chapter 2, I'll read this to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. And so this is, John is saying, I've got something to tell you, and it's here so that you can have certainty about whether or not you know God. By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, all of you are thinking, okay, not me. I don't keep his commandments. I know that. So what does John mean by this? One of the evidences that we love Christ is that we do what he says. Jesus says in John chapter 10, again, that those who uh, love me keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. 
This does not mean, and, and this is, I need to say this emphatically, this does not mean that we never sin. If you read through 1 John, John makes this very clear. Much of John's gospel is speaking about this idea of certainty, about knowing. And John's very clear that he's not a perfect, he doesn't view God as a perfectionist, that you never sin. That's not what he is saying. Rather, it, it means that we desire on the one hand to serve the Lord. So we love Christ and we want to keep his commandments. We have a desire to obey him on the one hand, knowing that at the same time, on the other hand, we do fail. We fail to love him, we fail to uh, obey him, and we give in to sinful desires. And when we do so, though, what do we do? If we sin and if we love Jesus, well, then when we have sinned, we keep his commandments by confessing that sin. Confession of sin is, is obedience. Confession of sin is obeying God. If I've sinned because I, in a moment I didn't love Jesus, in a moment I followed my sinful desires instead of following Jesus, a faithful response to that is, no, I need to love Jesus. And so I get on my knees and I confess that sin. Confession is obedience. That's loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. So by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And, and in parentheses, and when we don't, we confess our sins. That's further keeping of his commandments. That's further following and loving Christ. Okay, so the first evidence that scripture gives us is that, if we, that we, know, if we know that we know God if we keep his commandments. Secondly, and this is related to this, the second evidence is the work of the Spirit in our lives. The work of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's speaking about the, the work that Christ did for us on the cross and God's plan for our salvation since the beginning of, uh, since before the foundations of the world. And Paul says in uh, chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, he says, in Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you believed in Jesus because you heard the gospel, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What does this mean? This means that um, when, when you believed, when God saved you, he gave you his Holy Spirit. And he gave you that Holy Spirit as a promise. In fact, he gave, more than a promise, he gave you his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. As a guarantee. Um, think of it this way. When you go to buy a house, buy a home, one of the things you do is you put down earnest money. You put down an earnest payment on that home. Which means that if you walk away from that preliminary deal, you lose your earnest money. You don't get to take that with you. You, you put down earnest money showing that you're really interested in buying this home. You've entered into an agreement. And if you walk away from that agreement, you lose that earnest money. It's the same idea here in Ephesians 1. When, when God gives the Holy Spirit, he gives it as a guarantee a guarantee of what? A guarantee that, that he will bring you to that redemption of that, that you are his purchased possession. He, he's bought you. You're his. And the spirit is on you as a guarantee, in you as a guarantee, which means 
if God walked away from that deal, he would lose the Holy Spirit, which is nuts. That's an impossibility. That would be God dividing himself from himself for all eternity. It is an impossibility. When God, when, when a person is saved and God grants the Holy Spirit, the gift of life and, and salvation, God doesn't back away from that deal. And so the Holy Spirit working in your life, then when you see evidences of the Holy Spirit working in your life, that is a means by which you can be assured and certain of your salvation. So what are these evidences of the Holy Spirit working in your life? Well, Paul gives us a list of them in Galatians chapter five. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things, if these things are growing in you, and again, it's like, it's like the growth of a tree. It doesn't happen all at once. But over the course of your life, do you look back and you see the Spirit working in you, growing you up in these things? Are these things bearing fruit in your life? That's a means or an evidence that, that you can hang on to, that you can trust, it. yes, I can be certain that I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, I see the Spirit working in my life. That's an evidence that I can, that I can be certain from. So this is the second evidence, the, the work of the Spirit in our lives. The third is that when you sin, because again, saved people sin, saved people still sin, when you sin, you experience the displeasure and the chastening of the Lord. When you sin, God deals with you. You feel the guilt and the shame of that sin. Now, unbelievers can feel guilty and, and shameful as well. But it's a different sort of conscience pricking that goes on in the life of a Christian. When, when you sin, if you believe in Jesus, if he has saved you, when you sin, you know it. It's sort of like you've, when you've been saved, you were turned from a fish into a cat. Hang in there with me. <laughs> You're turned in from a, ki- a fish to a cat. And a fish loves to live in the water. In fact, he can't live out of the water. And can a cat go to the water? A cat can go to the water. Can a cat get in the water? A cat can get in the water. Can a cat get all the way in the water? A cat can get all the way in the water. He can get all the way up to here in his sin. Is the cat going to stay there? No, the cat's going to flee. He's not going to stay there very long because his nature has been changed. He's not a fish. He can't remain in that sin. Because his conscience is, is directed by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's working in him, he gets out. He flees. He flees the sin. He knows that he's in sin and he gets out. Because he hates it. Because he's no longer a fish. Okay? This is the same kind of thing here. When you experience that displeasure in that sin, that's, that's the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that um, the Lord disciplines and chastens his children, those that he loves. In fact, if, if as a Christian, you go through life and, and you never feel the displeasure of the Lord over your sin, that should be concerning to you. Because Proverbs tells us that a father disciplines 
the son that he loves. And if, he's, if he withholds the rod, he hates him. If you don't feel God's displeasure over your sin, over your actual sin, not over whatever else you've made up that is sin, but, but over your actual sin, your disobedience to God's word, if you don't feel his displeasure, that's concerning. If you feel his displeasure, that should be a comfort to you. If you feel God's displeasure over your sin, that's a comfort to you and a call to turn back, get out of the water, come back to the Lord and confess those sins. So again, first evidence, we know that we know God if we keep his commandments. Second, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Third, when we sin, we experience the displeasure and chastening of the Lord. And then fourth, this is that the message of the gospel makes sense to you. That, I think, that strikes us as a weird assurance of salvation. But it's what scripture, I think, teaches. Look with me at uh, 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. I'm going to read verse 18 and then jump down to um, a few other verses as well. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is this message of the cross? Children, again, I want to address you particularly. Do you know, children, do you know what the gospel is? Your parents should be asking you, what, what is the gospel? What did Jesus do? The gospel is a simple message that Jesus is the son of God and he came and he became man so that he could live a perfect life and then die on a cross, be buried in the ground and be raised again on the third day for your salvation. And when he died on the cross, he didn't just die on the cross because people were angry with him. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for all of your sins. Every single one of them. And then now, he, he, and then he, after he was raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven and he's with God the Father now reigning over the world. This is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel teaches us. And so the message of the cross, the message of this idea that God could become man and die for your sins, that message is foolishness to those who don't believe. It doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. Who would believe such a thing? It's foolishness to those who do not believe, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We understand it and we know it to be true. Jump down to verse uh, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. They didn't understand it. They rejected it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, all people, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. I also want to read in chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. My natural man, Paul, it means the, the man who is left to himself who's apart from the Spirit, who doesn't have the Spirit, he's not saved. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 
Do you hear the message of the gospel preached here week after week after week? Do you hear it told to you by your parents and by your friends? Do you hear it in other sermons that you listen to throughout the week? Do you hear it when you read the word? Does it make sense to you? Yes, Jesus Christ, the son of God, became man and he died for my sins and amen. Then you can know that you are saved. That's evidence to you that the spirit is working in you and that spirit is a guarantee. And along with this, Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 2. Won't turn there now. This message of the gospel ought to at times be overwhelming. It ought to at times, it might seem actually a little foolish to us too. Really, God... God would send his son to die for me? He doesn't, does he really know all that I have done? All that I am? All that I have thought? All that I have said? And he would, he would not just come and save me, like, you know, lift me out of the, out of the grave, lift me out of a, a, a dark place, but he would lay down his very life for me? This gospel message, while overwhelming, is to those who are saved, it's the aroma of life. It's life to you. But to those who are perishing, Paul says, it's the aroma of death. The gospel stinks. The message of the gospel stinks to those who don't believe. It smells bad. They want to get away from it. But to those who are being saved, it's the aroma of life. It's the only thing, and we want more and more of it. This is the fourth evidence, last evidence, and again, this one does not come from Scripture directly, but it's, I think it's a logical conclusion. I've alluded to this already. And so, kids, I want you to listen up to this. I, I distinctly remember my dad telling me this when I was asking this question. How can I know that I'm saved? And, and this, in some ways, has been the most helpful thing for me to remember. If a child or anyone is asking this question, that itself is good evidence that God is at work in your heart. If you are asking the question, how can I know that I'm saved? That is good evidence that God is at work. Kids, do you, if you ask that question, again, especially you, you middle school, high school aged children, I don't like calling you children. You're not little children. You know what I mean. When you ask that question, the fact that you ask that question is an assurance. The fact that you ask that question should give some certainty. It, that, the fact that you're asking that question is not itself faith. I want to make that clear. It's not itself. That's not what saves you. But the fact that you're asking that question shows that the Spirit's at work in you because you you, it makes a difference to you whether or not you're saved. If it makes a difference to you whether or not you're saved, that's evidence that God is at work. Someone in whom the Spirit is not at work would not be concerned whether he has the Spirit. You wouldn't be concerned if you have that guarantee because you wouldn't care. But if you're asking this question, that's a good evidence to you. 
And I want to be very clear about this uh, because, um, again, the temptation can be to think, after hearing a message like this, the temptation can be to think that um, in order to be saved, I need to have assurance. And that's not true at all. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts are deceitful. It is true that a person can deceive themselves even with regard to their assurance. You could think that you're, you're, you've grasped onto all of these things of assurance and it could be that you're making it all up. And so this is why it's very important in the end, we must remember that we are not saved because we are sure about it. We're not saved because we know that we know. We're not saved because we have assurance of our salvation. We're, we're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and that alone. And so whether you have realized that you have been presumptuous about the grace given to you, or whether you fall into the temptation to wrongly doubt, the answer again is to turn and look to Jesus. If you want to know how can I know that I'm saved, the fundamental answer is look to Christ. Look to him. Why? Because he's the author and the finisher of your faith. What does that mean? It means that he's the one who began it and he's the one that's going to bring it to completion and he doesn't lose any that the Father has given to him. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. So if you want to know that you're saved, look to Christ. Look to him. Don't look into your heart, deep into your heart to see if you really mean it. Look to Christ. The best thing for a Christian's sense of insecurity, and that's what these questions about assurance are. I feel insecure. I feel insecure in my faith. The best assurance, the best security for an insecure Christian is the security of Christ. And so if you want assurance, seek Christ. Seek him early. Seek him diligently. Seek him always. Seek him all the more. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy to us. Thank you that you have sent your Son to die for our sins and thank you that not only that, but you sent him to die for our sins and then you've given us ways to know that we know you through him. You've given us ways to know that, that we are saved in him. You've given us means and things to hang on to while we wait for you to bring this, this wreck, this work to completion. Thank you that we can know this and teach us to know this. Teach us to trust in Christ and to have assurance and security in him and in him alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with your Cantus Christi and turn to number 373. Number 373.